We need uh, your spirit to open our eyes, Lord, in this uh, uh, unusually tricky passage. Help us to, to see clearly what your word is saying here. Help me to preach and communicate clearly, Lord, to your body. Feed us and nourish us with these words, Christ Jesus. And we ask all this in your precious name. Amen. The Apostle Paul, writing to his young uh, apprentice, Timothy, uh, says these words in 2 Timothy 1.13. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. I, I, I'd ask you to look at that first phrase and note the underlying word pattern. It's uh, not a mystery what that is, a model or a standard to follow. And Paul was writing to this young pastor and encouraging him to follow the pattern that he had seen in Paul's own life and teaching. In our passage this morning, we discover that there is also a pattern of unsound words, uh, a pattern uh, uh, of bad theology and bad teaching that false teachers tend to follow. This is uh, the third look at false teachers that Jude has given us in this book. And up to this point, in, in previous weeks, uh, we've seen his uh, very thorough description of false teachers. Uh, he's described the danger of false teaching that we looked at several weeks uh, back. Three dangers we saw on that Sunday. For those who uh, are false teachers, for those who follow false teaching, there's the danger of apostasy, that like, like Israel in the wilderness. There's the danger of falling away from the faith, of being misled, being led astray. There's the danger of autonomy, the danger of rejecting Christ's authority and the authority of his word. And, and then finally, the danger of immorality, like Sodom and Gomorrah, the danger of pursuing sexual sin that false teachers often fall in. And then uh, in verses 8 through 10, uh, the last time we spoke about Jude, uh, Jude described five departures that false teachers make. They depart from the authority of the Bible, the moral law of God, the lordship of Christ, the, the recognition of evil. They denied its existence and influence. And lastly, they departed from understanding spiritual truth. Well, And now today, Jude brings this section on false teachers. Again, very thorough examination of the kind of men that these are in their practices and, and, and their characteristics. He brings this section on false teachers to a conclusion by describing the doom of false teachers. There are three features of false teachers in this section. You'll find these on the back of your bulletin. Please use that to, to follow along this morning. The first feature is the pattern that false teachers tend to follow. Uh, not the good pattern, the pattern of sound words that, Tim, that Paul prescribed to Timothy, but they follow a pattern of, of bad theology, of, of bad teaching. And they get this, uh, they follow the pattern of three men from the Old Testament that, that Jude mentions here. 
perhaps you were wondering, who are these people that he brings up as though you're supposed to know them? Well, you are supposed to know them uh, if you've read the Old Testament. But the first pattern he brings up is the pattern of Cain. Uh, look at verse 11 in your copy of God's word. He begins, woe to them. Jude's uh, uh, using language from the Old Testament as well as some of the very words of Jesus from the Gospel of Matthew. Jude announces uh, the doom of false teachers afflicting the church. When he says woe to them, he's not merely praying that misfortune would eventually befall them. Uh, this is an apostolic pronouncement of, of their eternal destination, of their eternal woe. When woe is pronounced on someone like Jude does here, it means that their end is eternity apart from Christ. You don't want to have someone say woe to you like this does. I mean, you know, mom, woe to you if you do not make your bed today. Or, you know, less, less uh, dramatic woes. But this is entirely different. This is an announcement of eternal woe. And we hear these in the other announcements of woe in the Bible. Jesus says in Matthew 11, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Well, that's eternal woe he's talking about. And then uh, in Matthew 26, uh, also it says, The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, Jesus speaking here, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed, Judas Iscariot. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And so when woe is pronounced like this, it's not just a, a, a wish or a prayer for something to happen to them, something bad to happen to them. This is a man writing under the authority of the Spirit, under the Spirit's guidance and inspiration, pronouncing their eternal woe, their eternal destiny, their eternal separation from Christ. Well, from there, Jude goes on to explain why uh, they will face this uh, eternal woe. It says in the next phrase, for they walked in the way of Cain. For gives us the reason for their eternal woe. And it says they walked or they conducted their lives or they lived their lives the same way that Cain did. How did Cain live his life? Um, maybe you remember uh, the account of Cain and Abel from Genesis chapter 4. Cain murdered his brother Abel. But I don't think it's murder that Jude is referring to. I don't think murder is the issue with these false teachers. Uh, otherwise, it would have been a different letter. Uh, the, the false teachers were not murdering people in the church. Before Cain murdered Abel, the Lord confronted Cain for his disregard for his word, his command. I want you to hear this. Uh, from Genesis chapter 4, just to read a few verses of, of this account of Cain and Abel. Listen to what it says in Genesis 4 verse 3. 
In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. We can, we can make several conclusions from these verses. Apparently, sometime previously, the Lord had instructed these brothers to bring a sacrifice to him, a blood sacrifice, the, the blood of an animal. And, and the reason that's so important is because that sacrifice would point forward to the sacrifice that Jesus eventually made on the cross for uh, the payment of our sins. But Cain, Cain knew better than this. And, and operating on his intuition instead of the Lord's instruction, he made a sacrifice of produce or fruit from the ground. We, and we can deduce this from what the Lord said to Cain. If you do well, in other words, if you bring the right kind of sacrifice, this is what Jude's got in mind when he's referring to Cain. It's not murder but the deliberate disregard or deliberately ignoring what God had commanded him to do. Like Cain before them, these false teachers are, are deliberately ignoring what God said and living and teaching what they believed was right. They're going off of their own intuition and not the Lord's instruction. So they, they follow Cain's pattern to begin with, uh, a, a bad pattern to follow, uh, and his deliberate disregard for God's word. Well, he goes on and he, he makes another reference. He, uh, the second pattern they follow is the pattern of Balaam. And again, this might leave you scratching your head. Who's Balaam? It says in the next phrase, and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. What is that about? Uh, uh, previously, they walked in the way of Cain, conducted their lives the way that Cain did. But, but the, the second pattern, Balaam, uh, their opposition to God, notice how their opposition to God escalates. Cain, uh, they walked in the way of Cain. But look at this, this verb. They abandoned themselves to Balaam's error. They gave themselves. Uh, they surrendered themselves. They gave themselves over to this error, the same error that Balaam committed. Uh, uh, something they, they dedicated themselves to. We can read about Balaam in Numbers 22 and 24. And this is back in Israel's history uh, when they were moving up to conquer the promised land and the king of, of Midian was, was afraid of Israel. And, and he hired Balaam, the prophet, to pronounce a curse on the nation of Israel. Perhaps you remember this. And, and it, it was a disaster. Because every time Balaam opened his mouth to pronounce a curse on Israel, he, he came out blessing them instead uh, by God's overruling providence, of course. It's not until chapter 31, when, when that plan had failed, 
We also learn that Balaam had advised the women of the region to tempt and seduce the men of Israel, lure them into idolatry and adultery at a location named Peor. Uh, Numbers 31 tells us this. Behold, these, these women, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. So these, this example escalates the situation. And, and these teachers not only ignore the words of God, like Balaam, they have taught error for the sake of money. They're in it for profit. Uh, They've given themselves, dedicated themselves uh, to false teaching, uh, to pad their own wallets. This is the second pattern that they were guilty of imitating. And then there's one more, another somewhat obscure reference, and that's the pattern of Korah. Uh, at the very end of verse 11, look at what it says in your Bible. And perished in Korah's rebellion. Again, look how, look at Jude's word choice. They start out walking in the way of Cain, then they abandon themselves to Balaam's error, but now look, it says, the, it says they perish in Korah's rebellion. What was Korah's rebellion? It's, it's described in number 16. Uh, Korah was from the tribe of Levi and a relative of Moses. And as a, as a Levite, he had important duties to carry out in the tabernacle of Israel where they worshipped uh, there in the desert. Korah, it turns out, wanted more than mere service at the temple. He wanted to be one of Israel's priests. And when he was not selected to be a priest, he led a rebellion against Moses' leadership uh, together with 250 men. The, the uh, count ends quite dramatically. I encourage you to go back and read it in Numbers 16. Uh, uh, the ground underneath Korah and the other two leaders uh, opens underneath them and swallows them up. And it says they went down live into Sheol. It, it, it swallows not just Korah and the other two leaders, their families and all their possessions, uh, while the 250 men in their rebellion, uh, it says the fire from the Lord fell from heaven to consume them. It's really uh, an amazing display of, of uh, God's glory. And Jude's opponents follow the pattern of Korah by rebelling against the established leadership of the church. Uh, the elders that were uh, ruling and governing and shepherding that body of Christ, uh, they were rebelling against their authority just as Korah had rebelled against Moses. And, and, and note, note again that word, these perished, uh, using the past tense, uh, Jude is saying that the doom of these false teachers is an established certainty. So to begin with, uh, these false teachers, Jude tells us this in this first feature, they follow a pattern. They, they follow a pretty typical pattern that we've seen in the Old Testament. They ignore the word of God, disregard it like Cain did. They're in it for money. They teach false things to, to earn a profit. 
just like Balaam did. And lastly, they rebel against the established leaders, just like Korah did. Um, you and I are called to follow a pattern, of course, but a pattern that's different than this. Not the pattern of bad teaching, not the pattern of bad theology that these men model, but the pattern of sound teaching found in God's Word. And so I just want to ask you this morning, what kind of pattern are you following? I would really discourage you from watching too many preachers on television. Uh, most of the ones I've seen on TV are, are like these false teachers. Walk in the way of Cain, abandon themselves to Balaam's error, and will perish like the people in Korah. Korah's rebellion did. What's the pattern that you follow and model yourself after? The, the supreme pattern we're called to follow is the pattern of Christ and the pattern of sound teaching found in God's Word. And so listen to the, what this pastor said writing in the 1800s from Great Britain. He said, J.C. Ryle Arm yourself with a thorough knowledge of the written Word of God. Read your Bible. Neglect your Bible, and nothing that I know of can prevent you from error if a plausible advocate of false religion, uh, of false teaching, shall happen to meet you. Did you hear that? Neglect your Bible, and nothing that I know of can prevent you from error if a plausible advocate of false teaching shall happen to meet you. Make it a rule to believe nothing except... It can be proved from Scripture. The Bible alone is infallible. Uh, so how do we put this into practice? Uh, how, how do we live with this? Uh, how do we use it in life? Uh, the answer is, friend, is, is like J.C. Ryle suggested, a thorough knowledge of God's Word. This is the basic of all basics. Apart from personal faith in Jesus Christ and his atoning death on the cross, can I just say it's a, it should be true that Christians are people who read the Bible. Isn't that radical? What's your intake of Scripture like? You know, it's funny. Uh, really, Jude gives us, tells us everything about false teachers that we really need to know. I mean, he's thorough. Uh, I mean, after all, three sermons on false teachers. Woohoo! You know. Uh, but he is thorough and he goes through it telling us about them, what they're like, etc. He doesn't say, you know, go out and hone up on all the false religions and false teachers in the world. What's not required is a thorough knowledge of what false religions and teachers teach. Some knowledge is, of course, a little helpful, like that field guide on false teaching I showed you several weeks back. 
You don't need to know every in and out of the Mormon church or the Jehovah's Witness or whatever false teacher you see on TV. What's necessary is a thorough knowledge of what the truth is. And that truth is contained in Scripture. And knowing that and having that as a grid for your life is what will rescue you ultimately from false teaching. Well, not only does uh, Jude describe the pattern that false teachers uh, tend to follow, uh, they tend to imitate these three men from the Old Testament. Jude goes further now, and he's going to use, uh, he's going to illustrate this for us. He's going he's to give us the illustration of, of what these uh, men are like. It, it's as though he's answering the question, what are these false teachers really like? And, and he's going to give us six illustrations from the natural world. And I want to point these out to you beginning in verse 12. The first illustration is they're like hidden reefs. Look in verse 12 in your Bible. These are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear. You might have a version that says uh, hidden spots or blemishes. Uh, These are blemishes at your love feast. But most scholars agree that this term refers to submerged rocks near the shore and should be translated like this, hidden reefs or dangerous reefs. There was a hidden danger to these false teachers, especially when the body of Christ gathered together for a meal, commonly referred to uh, here as a love feast or an agape feast. And those were, uh, well, very much like our first Sunday fellowship. Um, uh, People brought food and Of course, this was being abused in Corinth, as you perhaps well know. The body of Christ gathered for a meal and encouragement. At the very end of that meal, they observed the Lord's Supper, or communion, as it's referred to. And it was during the Lord's Supper especially that this dangerous influence of these men was revealed. It says, as they feast with you without fear. Uh, uh, that can also be translated as they feast with you without reverence uh, or as they he's referring to the fear of God and it seems that these unbelieving false teachers uh, were taking the Lord's Supper shamelessly you recall from, from the many times I've read you 1 Corinthians 11 that the Lord's Supper should be taken carefully and reverently and to eat or drink uh, the elements of the Lord's Supper without recognizing the body and blood of the Lord uh, uh, represented in the cup and the bread was to eat and drink judgment on yourself. And so there was a danger then in believers adopting the same irreverent attitude toward the Lord's Supper as these unbelieving men demonstrated Don't get sucked in to their irreverence. When you gather to take communion together, Jude is writing to them, especially in connection with the Lord's Supper. These are dangerous men. It's like sailing near submerged rocks on the shore. And then Jude goes on to refer to them as shepherds, lousy shepherds, hired hands who care nothing about the sheep of God's flock. Look again 
as verse 4 goes on to say, shepherds feeding themselves. Uh, instead of leading the sheep to fresh pasture, these men are only concerned with satisfying their own appetites, like the ones we just read about in Ezekiel 40, 34 moments ago. In, instead of feeding the sheep, Israel's false shepherds were feeding on the sheep. The flock they were called to protect had become their meal. And these opponents of Jude, these false teachers, they were aspiring to leadership positions in the church, but their leadership was entirely self-serving. They did not feed and nourish the flock of God, but used the flock of God to make themselves grow fat. Their, um, their hidden reefs, their shepherds, the third illustration that Jude gives us is waterless clouds. Uh, again, verse 12 uh, says, Waterless clouds swept along by winds. Uh, the economy of Israel, you remember, was heavily dependent on agriculture. And they desperately needed the rains for their crops and their livestock. Drought was a serious thing, much more grave than we have uh, drought in North Georgia. Still, it's, it's not good, but... You know, the food still comes into the grocery store, it seems, and, but it was much more hand-to-mouth in, in these days. And you can imagine how disappointing it would be for a farmer to see the, the clouds gather, uh, dark clouds that promise refreshing rain uh, for these crops, only to have these clouds blow over without producing a drop. You remember a few years back in North Georgia when there was such a severe drought and I remember standing by my bedroom window and seeing my brown lawn and seeing dark clouds in the distance thinking maybe today, only to have the clouds come in and I could see the rain falling in another part of Canton. Very frustrating and, and disappointing. That's what these men are like. Uh, these men, uh, their teaching is useless. It's full of promise, looks and sounds impressive, brings the hope of spiritual food, but, but in the end, it offers nothing in terms of genuine nourishment. It can't satisfy your soul, Jude says. These are waterless clouds, nothing substantial to offer you in the way of spiritual food. And in a similar vein, he calls them fruitless trees. Uh, we, we uh, of course, might remember the story of the fig tree that Jesus curses, and this is along those lines. Uh, verse 12 uh, says, Fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. There's a little bit of debate about what this phrase means, but the ESV, uh, I believe, has gotten it right that, fruitless trees in late autumn. In other words, the time when you would expect a harvest to be there, there was nothing. Jude's opponents, these false teachers, were like trees that failed to bear fruit. Imagine uh, apple trees in North Georgia failing to produce, produce apples. And so you drive up to LJ and there's nothing there. And you've made the trip for nothing. That's what Jude is saying again. Uh, these men don't produce evidence of God's grace in, in their lives. 
Their lives are barren. There, there's nothing there to commend them to you. Uh, Jesus warned about this very thing. Let me remind you of his words from the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to what Christ says about, about teachers and, and bearing fruit. Christ says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Uh, there was no evidence of God's grace at work in these men. And because of that, they would experience his judgment as unbelievers. Jude goes on here and, and says that they're twice dead, uprooted. They're dead because there's no spiritual life in them to begin with. But then they'll be twice dead because they'll be uprooted and thrown in the fire. As I just read to you, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown to the, in, into the fire. In other words, these false teachers who are spiritually dead will experience the second death of God's eternal judgment in hell. So the fourth description of these men is fruitless trees. He illustrates them next as wild waves. We see this uh, in verse 13, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Uh, instead of uh, bearing fruit as genuine believers, all these men can produce is the shameful effects of their own sin. That, that phrase, casting up the foam, uh, comes from a, a Greek verb, and in, in, in uh, the Greek language it's used to describe seaweed and other debris deposited on the beach. Uh, by the waves, if you've, if you've been at the beach first thing in the morning, you know, not to be crass, but all you see in front of you is, is death. Uh, horseshoe crabs washed up and empty shells and jellyfish that have died. Judah's using a very graphic description here. And I, I just caution you and urge you as you watch these people on TV again, Please don't watch these people on TV. Uh, all, they can, all they can bring up is, is the shame of their own sin. Jude has pulled this idea from Isaiah 57. He's borrowing heavily. It says, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet. And its waters toss up mire and dirt. And, and so see the image in your mind of, of a boisterous sea. Now, wild waves, he calls them, of, of noisy and showy. And, and who doesn't like to watch the, uh, the surf? Uh, Whitecaps, they're, they're fun to watch. They're fun to ride when you're out there on them. But, but really all that these can churn up is, is dirt and death. John MacArthur puts it like this, In the aftermath of a storm, the seashore is littered with debris and more, which is neither beneficial nor life-giving. 
That is a graphic picture of what false teachers produce. And instead of bringing forth the fruit of the Spirit, all that his opponents can wash up is, again, the shameful works of their sinful nature. They're like waves of the sea. Then finally, he says they're like wandering stars. We see this as verse 13 continues. Look in your Bible. It says, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Probably shooting stars is what Jude is thinking about here. Uh, not planets, but, but maybe meteors or things like that. Of course, it would be impossible to navigate by a shooting star. There's no way you could chart a course by uh, a star like that. And, and Jude might be thinking that false teachers make very unreliable guides for people to follow. That's possible, but I think Jude's main point is the destination of these shooting stars. Uh, he, he's using this to describe their final destination. Uh, like shooting stars, again, they're, they make a big splash. They, they shine brightly. They shine briefly. They're popular. They're impressive. They, they're good communicators. They say oh, powerful things. And they shine for a time, but then they're plunged into complete darkness. They've come on the scene with an impressive media campaign and, and, and podcasts and a Facebook presence or Instagram presence. They, they post on Twitter. They've got 10,000 followers. But soon, June says, they'll be plunged into the darkness of, of God's eternal judgment. Jesus describes this in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 25, uh, this place of darkness. This is at the end of one of his parables. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this sixth illustration Jude uses, that of a shooting star or wandering star, to describe the doom and final end of these men who oppose God and reject His Word and teach what's false for financial gain. What are these men like? Jude is answering, and he, he answers it with six illustrations. And through these illustrations, he describes their danger and their self-centeredness and, and their complete barrenness and their eternal destiny. Well, there's one more feature of false teachers that he gets to in our passage today. Uh, he describes uh, thirdly and finally the judgment of false teachers. Uh, he described the pattern that they follow to begin with, much like those men from the Old Testament, Cain and Balaam and Korah. And then he illustrated what they were like with six illustrations from the natural world and and now he brings this to an end. And we've seen him talk about their judgment, their doom, throughout this section on false teachers. But here he is going to point to it specifically and, and, and drive it home. Uh, this judgment that will befall these men who corrupt Scripture and lead the sheep astray. Uh, he quotes Enoch here and describes uh, the judgment 
that will happen to them when Christ returns. He says three things uh, uh, in regard to this judgment. First of all, he, he quotes the prophecy of Enoch. I want you to see this. Firstly, Jude quotes a prophecy attributed to Enoch, who you might not remember off the top of your head. It's, he's described here as the seventh from Adam, and another Old Testament character. Look at verse 14. It was, about, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, quote, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. Do you get the idea that these people are ungodly? He's not finished yet. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Uh, uh, end quote. Uh, this is a, a prophecy that... Uh, it, comes from Enoch, allegedly. The only problem is that it's not found anywhere in the Old Testament. It, Jude's quote is from a source called First Enoch, a, a book that was very well known to Jude's readers, a, very, a book very well known to the false teachers that he's referring to here. But Enoch... First Enoch is not considered part of the Bible by any religious group. It's not in the Catholic Bible. It's not part of the Apocrypha. Nor is it part of any other religious group's scriptures. In fact, it's clear that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, didn't even write the book of First Enoch. So what in the world... Are we going to do with this quote that is, has a very dubious origin? I mean, do we even pay attention to this or do we just kind of skip it? Do I get out my exacto blade and cut these two verses out of my Bible? What do we do? We remember that all scripture is breathed out by God. Jude is writing the book of Jude, carried along, inspired by God the Holy Spirit. He's not writing under his own steam. And that means it was the Spirit of God who directed Jude to use this quote. And Jude included this quote because he believed it to be a genuine prophecy. It doesn't mean that Jude believed the entire book of First Enoch. Or that he thought the entire book was genuine. Or that he thought it should be part of Scripture. All that he thought was genuine was this one quote that he's using. You get right down to it. I mean, look at the subject matter of this quote. There's really, there's really nothing all that remarkable about it. Uh, there's no information in his quote that, that you couldn't find in other parts of Scripture. In fact, the words of this prophecy are very similar to how the Lord descended on Mount Sinai. Listen to this. He said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. And then Jesus himself uttered very similar words to this quote. Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew 24 and, and the resonance between this. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. 
The moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn uh, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, uh, clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So, this, can I say, weird quote uh, that Jude uses, he, he uses under the inspiration of God's Spirit, and in doing so, quotes a genuine prophecy. This is the first thing we see here. The second thing I want you to see about this coming judgment, this prophecy, is it's about the return of Jesus Christ. Uh, look again, it says, Behold, the Lord comes. When, the, when he says the Lord, he's talking about Jesus Christ our Lord. When he comes at the end of the age, he and his thousands of holy angels. Again, this is like the way the Lord descended on Mount Sinai and his return to execute judgment on unbelievers. It will be stunning and majestic. He will come with power and great glory, Matthew tells us. This is about the second coming of Christ at the end of the age. And thirdly, we see here that uh, this prophecy says he will return to judge the deeds and words of false teachers. That's the purpose of his return is to pass judgment on the deeds and words of all unbelievers, but in particular these false prophets. Verse 15 makes this Clear, it says to execute judgment on all men and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they've committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things they have that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Uh, they, Jesus, will return to judge their uh, actions, their sexual immorality as well as the things they've spoken. And, and Jude gives us an example of the things they've spoken in verse 16. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. That's, that's language from Israel in the wilderness. And, and Jude is telling us they're just like ancient Israel, those, that group of complainers uh, that Moses had to deal with. They grumble. The word grumble is worth noting. It's an onomatopoeia. Uh, the, the term is gangusman, which sounds like grumbling. Malcontents, they complain about what providence, the hand providence has, has dealt them. They're discontent with God's, what God has allowed. Uh, they follow their own desires. They're loudmouth boasters. Uh, the boasting in particular is, is they don't have to follow God's word. They, they, they boast about their, their disregard for scripture. We, we're above that. We don't have to follow that. And they play favorites with the people. Uh, they preach to uh, those with wealth uh, to gain advantage of them. We see that Christ will return to execute judgment on these false teachers. He was convicted in 1973 of uh, trying to bribe a witness. 
and this gentleman remained free during the three years of appeals. Finally, in 1976, all his appeals were exhausted and he should have begun serving a four-year prison sentence. However, nobody notified him when to turn himself in. And of course, he didn't volunteer himself. Uh, so for seven years, he lived between the fear of being caught and the hope of falling through the cracks of the legal system. He wondered if he'd, he'd escape uh, notice or would the long arm of justice finally show up in the middle of the night and, and snatch him out of bed. It seems like it was the tip of an informant that gave him away and the court was finally able to flush him out of the crack he'd fallen into, ordered him to prison on a specific day and a specific time. He uh, hoped to escape justice, but he failed. Sometimes perhaps you and I wonder if God's justice will ever catch up to the false teachers we read about and hear about. And it seems that every week they're free to spread their lies and false teaching without consequence, with impunity. They can go on saying these outrageous things, but make no mistake, according to these verses here, that they have not fallen through the cracks of God's justice. They have not escaped His notice. They have not been lost in God's legal system. After all, so many sinners to keep track of and, and exact judgment on. They will face certain justice at the end of the age when Christ returns. And this is the third feature that uh, Jude brings to our attention. He, he's mentioned it before, uh, mentioned it at least twice in, in these verses, but the certain judgment of these men will happen. Uh, and will happen at the return of Christ. He, he does this quoting a prophecy of Enoch that describes the return of Christ when he comes to pass judgment on the deeds and words of these men. So in this third look at false teachers, uh, what's the word of God have to say to us through Jude? Again, he started in verse 5 with the dangers of false teaching. Uh, he moved on to departures that false teachers make, and he concludes this week in verse 11 with the doom of false teachers, their end, their final end. And we've seen three features of these false teachers in today's verses. The pattern uh, that they follow, like these men from the Old Testament, these men are like them. Uh, the illustration of false teachers that he uh, presented from the natural world. These false teachers are like this, he tells us. And then lastly, the judgment that they will face at the return of Jesus Christ. So I want to stop here and, and make a, 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 an application or two to us this morning. Uh, the first application is that unless you have trusted in Christ and his atoning death on the cross, you will share the same end as these false teachers. Christ died on the cross to pay for sins, for sinners like me and you. And the word of God calls you to turn from your sin 
and rely only in Christ and His payment for sin. And friend, this is called repentance and faith. And unless you have done this, turned to trust in Jesus' atoning death, you will join these men. And I pray that you don't. I plead with you today, if you don't know what it means to follow Jesus Christ, or if you've done that, I'm not asking you if you've walked an aisle. I'm not asking you if you've said the sinner's prayer. I'm asking you if you have put your personal trust, your reliance on the payment Jesus made on the cross for sinners. That's what I'm asking. And does your life bear fruit that you have done that? Or are you a waterless cloud? Or are you a wild wave that coughs up nothing but dirt and death? Is there a change in your heart? Is there a change in your life? Is there a change in your actions? Because if you tell me, yes, I've trusted in Christ, but you go on living the same way, it's obvious, like these false teachers, you've not trusted in Christ. Because it says He comes to give us a new heart. And life changes with a new heart. That's one application. A second application, I stress again, as simple as it sounds, it's vital. Your intake of truth to erect a defense against falsehood. We live in a world riddled with falsehood. Some of it comes from men who profess to be Christians who proclaim it from pulpits, who gain a following, uh, uh, who are eating those sheep, and they are following in his wake to eternal judgment in hell. Friend, you must gird yourself with the truth of Scripture. If you're clueless about how to do that, of course I would love to talk to you uh, any of the elders would love to talk to you, including Pastor Brian. Second application is in, in, inject yourself with the truth of Scripture. A third application is graciously warn your friends of false teaching. Hey, watch out for this guy. According to Scripture, what he's telling you is not true. There's a bad way to do that, and there's a good way to do that, a way infused with God's grace, uh, not trying to beat this friend or loved one over the head, but, but pleading with them, uh, turn to Scripture and see what it says for yourself. Uh, help your friends and family to see and discern false teaching when they start to follow it. Let me close in prayer. Lord, you have uh, given us a lot of information in your word about false teachers, more than we thought we needed, perhaps. But it's so clear and uh, so descriptive and it's everywhere in our world. 
We live in a world riddled with false teaching. We could turn on the TV this morning and see it. I pray, Lord, that we would follow the pattern of sound words found in, in your word and that we would follow the pattern of Christ and model our lives after him. Lord, I pray for anyone here today who, who has never put their faith never come to rely on your atoning death on the cross as the payment for their sins, that, Lord, you would draw them and woo them to yourself through your son's sacrifice, that they would turn their backs on, on sin or self-righteousness or whatever and, and trust in Christ and him alone. And, Lord, for the saints sitting here in front of me, I pray that you would rattle our cage and remind us again of how desperately we need the truth, to arm ourselves with truth, uh, to discern what's false. And God, give us love and tenderness toward those around us who have been misled by this false teaching. And help us to graciously show them the way of truth. Uh, not arrogantly, humbly encouraging them to look to your word. Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen.